You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at harvestoakville.ca. If you have your Bibles there, please go ahead and open them up to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, verse 32. And it's 8.30 on that Friday morning and Jesus Christ is stumbling through the streets of Jerusalem having lost so much blood that he can no longer carry his cross. A few hours later, earlier he had prayed, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. And he surrendered himself over to the will of God and he reached out and he took hold of the cup of suffering that he might pay. For the sins of the world. So when the soldiers arrived that night to arrest him, he was ready. And he gave himself over to them and he put his lips on the cup. And he was tried, he was condemned, he was scourged with whips that had been specially designed to tear off flesh. And now he is stumbling toward his crucifixion, bleeding profusely on a mission to pay for the sins of the world. On a mission to pay for mankind's refusal to acknowledge God, or seek God, or praise God, or thank God, or love God, or honor God. He's on a mission to pay for man's, mankind's refusal to come under the authority of God. He's on a mission to pay for mankind's refusal to worship God, the God who is eternal with no beginning and no end, the God who is all-powerful, the creator of time and space, the God who is perfectly good and wise and just and gracious and merciful and loving, the God who is the perfection of beauty and who alone is able to satisfy the human heart. He is on a mission to pay for the sins of the world. And he is stumbling toward his crucifixion where he will drink down the cup of suffering in all its fullness. And this morning, we will see that there are two parts to this cup of suffering. There is the physical agony at the top of the cup, but then there is the far, far more horrific spiritual agony at the bottom. And we'll begin here with Jesus drinking down the top of the cup. The top of the cup. And at the top of the cup is this, physical agony. At the top of the cup is physical agony. Have a look at verse 32. Verse 32, Matthew 27, verse 32. And as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. The Roman soldiers were responsible for getting Jesus through the city, through the crowd, to the place of his execution. But they see he can no longer carry the cross. So they scan the crowd and they see this man, Simon. We're told that Simon is a man from Cyrene. That means he's a man from a Greek outpost in North Africa, most likely making the pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover. The Gospel of Luke says this, that they seized Simon and they laid the cross on him. Look at verse 33. 
And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. Simon and Jesus, they reach the place of his execution. The soldiers then hand him this cup of mixed wine. It's mixed with something called gall. That means that it's mixed with something that tastes bitter. And the bitter thing that it's mixed with is myrrh. And myrrh had several uses, one of which was to somewhat sedate prisoners so they were easier to crucify. But verse 33 says that when he tasted it, he would not drink it. When Jesus realized what it was, he refused to drink it because he did not come to be sedated. He came to drink down the cup of suffering in its fullness and nothing less. Have a look at verse 35. And when they had crucified him, when Jesus refused to drink the cup of wine, the soldiers went ahead and they, they crucified him. Think of it. Think of it. They crucified their creator. They crucified God. They nailed God to a cross. And the Gospel of Mark tells us this took place at the third hour. That means it it took place at nine in the morning. But what did this look like exactly? Well, one scholar describes crucifixion this way. A criminal who was crucified was essentially forced to inflict upon himself a very slow death by suffocation. When the criminal's arms were outstretched and fastened by nails to the cross, he had to support most of the weight of his body with his arms. The chest cavity would be pulled upward and outward, making it difficult to exhale in order to be able to draw fresh breath. But when the victim's longing for oxygen became unbearable, he would have to push himself up with his feet. However, pushing himself upward in this way was excruciatingly painful because it required putting the body's full weight on the nails holding the feet. In some cases, crucified men would survive for several days like this in a constant state of physical agony and fending off suffocation. And this was no surprise to Jesus. John chapter 18 tells us that he knew everything that was about to happen to him. He knew everything about the physical agony that was about to happen to him, and he gave himself over to it. He willingly gave himself over to it. He gave over his hands to be pierced. He gave over his feet to be punctured. He gave over his body to be nailed to a cross because this is why he came. And as he hung on that cross, pierced, In physical agony, look what the soldiers are doing. Verse 35. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And for these soldiers, their whole world was a world of extreme violence. They had most likely crucified so many people at this point that the sight of a scourged, crucified human being that would most likely make each one of us vomit did not even phase them. 
So much so that at the foot of Jesus' cross, they're gambling. They're gambling for his clothing. Look at verse 36. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there, and over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now with standard for a sign to be placed over each crucified victim's head with their name on it, and then the crime that they, were, that they had committed, and Pilate had ordered in Jesus' case that the signs say, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Not just in one language, but in three, in Aramaic, Greek, and Latin, so that everyone who passed by could understand exactly what it said. The truth was right there. There's the truth. It's right over Jesus' head in plain sight for everyone, in everyone's language. He's the king. He's the king. And he's not only the king of the Jews. He's the king of all. He's the king of the universe. He's the king of glory. And he is crucified. The king of glory is crucified. Verse 38, then two robbers were crucified with him, one at the right and one at the left, and we'll hear more about them in a minute. And those who passed by derided him, that means that they mocked him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Now consider the scene. The road to Jerusalem is packed with people coming for the Passover. And as the crowd passes by, they see three men crucified. They zero in on that man in the middle. The the sign says, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. And they begin to mock him with ferocity. Notice how they mock him. Notice what they say at the end of verse 39. They're saying, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. In other words, if you are the son of God, prove it prove it. And how do they want him to prove it? They want him to prove it by going against the will of the Father and by coming down from the cross. That's their message. And they're delivering it with hostility and with cruelty. And the crowds aren't the only ones. Have a look at verse 41. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. The crowd is saying, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. The religious leaders are now saying, he says he's the son of God. Come down from the cross and we'll believe in you. And look what else, verse 44. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. There are literally voices coming from every side of Jesus Christ with one satanic message. If you are the son of God, does that sound familiar? If you are the son of God, come down from the cross, come down from the cross, come down from the cross, come down from the cross. But Jesus Christ is not coming down from the cross. Jesus Christ came down for the cross. And why? Why is there so much opposition from everyone around him? Here's why. Because he is on a mission to pay for the sins of the world. And he has already drank down the physical agony from the top of the cup. And now, 
He's moving toward the infinitely greater agony at the bottom of the cup because at the bottom of the cup is spiritual agony. At the bottom of the cup is spiritual agony. Now have a look at verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Jesus was crucified at 9 a.m. It's now noon. He's been hanging on the cross for three hours, and then suddenly, suddenly, a supernatural darkness falls. The Gospel of Luke says that the sun failed. There's no light. There's complete darkness. You would need a torch to see where you are going. And the darkness lasted for three hours. Three hours of supernatural darkness. Why? Why? Because darkness is a sign of judgment. And as the darkness falls in the midst of his physical agony, Jesus Christ is aware that something infinitely worse than crucifixion is about to happen. Not ten times worse, not a hundred times worse, not a thousand times worse, but something infinitely worse is about to happen. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that, that for our sake, for our sake, he made him to be sin. He, God the Father, made him, God the Son, to be sin, who knew no sin. And according to the eternal plan of the Father and the Son... And the Holy Spirit, the sin of the world is now transferred to Jesus Christ on the cross. And in this moment, the perfect, sinless, spotless, holy Son of God, the King of glory, is clothed in the wretched, disgusting sin of the world. And he becomes sin in the eyes of the Father. He has literally become what he hates and despises the most. He is clothed in the ugliness of the sin of the world. And the father now looks at his beloved son as though he is sin. And in this moment, there is no voice from heaven saying, Behold, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Instead, there is silence. Instead, there is Darkness. And then in the darkness, it happens. The thing that Jesus has been dreading the most, it happens. The reason why he was sweating blood back in the garden, it happens. The reason why he asked the Father that that the cup would pass from him, it happens. It happens. For all of eternity, the Father and the Son have enjoyed perfect fellowship and perfect joy and perfect love and perfect communion. But now in this darkness, Jesus Christ has become sin and it happens. He is forsaken by God. The Father turns his face away from what Jesus has become. He is forsaken. And why? Because for Jesus to truly pay for the sins of the world, he must become sin. And he must receive the full penalty for sin. Therefore, He must be forsaken. And he must drink down the wrath of God. And in this moment, the greatest joy of the Son of God is ripped away from him because God is ripped away from him. 
Now imagine, imagine for a moment that you were somehow able to fully experience God in all of his glory. Imagine having the fullness of joy and fullness of pleasure in the fullness of God's presence. Imagine being able to experience all of God in all of his glory. Imagine being able to experience God in such a way that is so infinitely satisfying, so infinitely beyond anything and everything that no description, no language can do justice to describing the joy and the pleasure that you experience in the presence of God because you experience all of God in all his glory and then uh, suddenly in a moment he's gone. Infinite loss. And in this moment on the cross, Jesus Christ is experiencing the agony of having the the perfect joy and the perfect pleasure that can only be found in the presence of God suddenly ripped away from him. He is forsaken. He is utterly forsaken. But there's more. Because the glorious, all-satisfying presence of the Father has been replaced with something. It has been replaced with the terror of his wrath. The glorious presence of the Father has been replaced with the horrific fury of his wrath. And words cannot even begin to accurately describe this moment. We cannot even begin to understand the degree of affliction Jesus Christ is experiencing as he is forsaken and then fully submerged into the wrath of God. Other than to say this. He is truly experiencing the greatest degree of misery and torment in the universe. And why? Why would he do this? Why would the Son of God come down and give himself over to this? Here's why. For you. For me, for me, say it, for me, for me, for me. That's why. God has chosen to perfectly love you, therefore he came to perfectly save you. And saving you perfectly means that on the cross, the presence of God was replaced by the wrath of God. It means that Jesus became what he hates the most and lost what he loves the most and endured what he dreads the most to give you and I what we need the most, God himself. And this is love. This is love. This is the love of God for you. He came for you. It's no wonder then that the Apostle Paul said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because there is no salvation. There is no salvation. There is no salvation apart from each one of us placing our faith in the wrath-bearing Son of God, Jesus Christ. Have a look at verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
It is the ninth hour. It is 3 p.m. And after suffering in silence, Jesus finally screams. And this is what he screams. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in doing so, he is quoting Psalm 22, verse 1, yet expressing the anguish and the terror and the horror and the affliction of his soul submerged in the wrath and fury of God for us. Verse 47. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. See, Jesus, he screamed, Eli not Elijah, and it's possible that they misheard him, but it's very unlikely, very unlikely. More likely, they are still mocking him, saying, oh, oh, Elijah is going to come and save him now. Making a joke out of the greatest cry of anguish in the universe. Verse 48. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. Verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And the Gospel of John and the Gospel of Luke tell us that Jesus cried out twice. That first he cried out, it is finished. And then he cried out, Father, Into your hands I commit my spirit. Now notice that Jesus cried out. That means he screamed. He screamed in strength with a loud voice. He did not die in weakness. He died in strength. Nobody took his life from him. He yielded up his spirit to the Father when the bottom of the cup had been fully drained. And look what happens next, verse 51. And behold, behold, The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now try to live in the text. Imagine you're there. You're there for the Passover. You walk by this man who's crucified. You read the sign. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. You see the crowd mocking him. You keep walking. And then then this supernatural darkness falls for three hours as you make your way to the temple. And there you are in the temple. And, and, and you hear this strange sound like tearing and you turn around into your horror by candlelight. You see that the curtain separating the Holy of Holies from the temple has been torn in two and it is exposed and you shield yourself from the presence of God. What does this mean? What's going to happen? What does this mean? This is what it means. It means that Christ died to bring us to God. The tearing of the curtain is a glorious declaration by God marking the end of man's separation from God. Sin has now been atoned for through the suffering of Jesus Christ. The cup of wrath has been emptied and full access to God is available to all who place their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. For all who trust in him and his finished work on the cross, they will no longer be separated from God by sin, but rather they will be forgiven and ushered into the presence of God that they might know him and delight in him and treasure him and love him and worship him. Look what else, verse 51. And behold, 
The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The curtain is torn. The whole earth begins to shake. Rocks are splitting. The power of God is being released everywhere. Supernatural events are happening everywhere, including this, verse 52. The tombs also were opened, and the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. The dead are rising. The curtain is torn. The earth is shaking. The rocks are splitting. Now look at how these hard-hearted Roman soldiers respond to all they see. Look at verse 54. When the centurion and all those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. For hours they sat there listening to the crowd and the religious leaders say, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. But now... After all that they have seen with their own eyes, the soldiers say, truly, this was the Son of God who chose to stay on the cross. And notice they say he was the Son of God. They say he was the Son of God because they see a dead body hanging on the cross. But Jesus Christ is not dead. And we'll hear a lot more about that this weekend. Amen? Amen? Amen. Amen.